About 10 years ago, my father, Arthur Hellman, a primary care doctor, offered to take me and my brother to Patagonia on a week-long hiking trip. For me, it was a no-brainer. Of course, I said. Thank you so much. Now, my father was never the active type, and his father, my grandfather, died at the age of 69 of a massive MI, the same age as my father was at the time he wanted to go on this trip. And so I asked him, do you think you're in good enough shape to climb a mountain? Well, he said, I'm going to go get a treadmill stress test, and if it's negative, I'll be good to go. So I said, really? Have you been having any chest pain or shortness of breath or any cardiac symptoms at all? Because you know as well as I do that there's a huge false positive rate for stress tests, and you might end up having to go for an angiogram and maybe a stent or a cabbage, which are majorly invasive with potential complications and disasters, etc., You know, I told him it would be crazy to go for a stress test, especially since he's not having any symptoms whatsoever. And all he said was, think what you want. I'm going to get a stress test. So off he went to get his treadmill stress test. And you guessed it, it was positive. So he decided the next day to go get a nuclear stress test. And it was positive too. So then he called me up to tell me the bad news and begged me to contact one of my cardiology buddies to get an angiogram. It was, I remember, a Friday afternoon, and of course, I obliged. So on the following Monday, he got an angiogram. What did it show? A huge left main lesion plus triple vessel disease. Holy crap. When he told me this, I couldn't get the image out of my head of me doing chest compressions on him in the middle of nowhere on a mountain in Patagonia. That was a Monday. On that Friday, he had a triple bypass. He did well, and after a year of cardiac rehab, he went to Patagonia and climbed the mountain, and he literally became the poster boy for cardiac rehab. Every time I drove to the downtown hospitals in Toronto, I'd see my father's face on a 60-foot-high poster plastered across the side of the cardiac rehab center. To this day, I still wonder whether that stress test and the subsequent cabbage was necessary. Did it save a life? Or would he have done just as well with medical therapy? Now, this journal jam is going to address whether or not we need to do stress tests for low-risk chest pain ED patients, so a very different population to my father. But I wanted to tell you the story of my father just to give you a flavor of how complex this issue is. I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And I'm Rory Spiegel. And this is the Journal Jam Podcast. Robert Bruce, an American cardiologist, is considered the founder of exercise cardiology. He created the Bruce Protocol that we all know in the early 1960s. And 60 years later, cardiac stress testing has been pretty much the standard for screening low-risk chest pain patients for coronary disease after a visit to the ED. It makes intuitive sense. If someone's got narrowing of their coronaries and you get their heart rate up a little bit with some exercise, you're increasing demand. And if you see some ST changes or the person develops angina, well, they probably have a coronary lesion that needs to be fixed or medicated to prevent them from having an MI, right? Well, it turns out that this 60-year-long belief that's led hundreds of thousands of people to angiograms, cardiac stents, and cabbages might actually be wrong. 
In this Journal Jam podcast, we're going to do a deep dive into the hugely complex literature of cardiac stress testing and see whether or not stress testing pretends any benefit for patients who we assess in the ED for chest pain. The problem is, if stress testing doesn't benefit our patients and isn't a good screening test for preventing MIs, then what do we do with our low-risk chest pain patients we see in the ED? The literature on stress testing is a, a little bit complex. In large part, that's because we don't have the perfect kind of evidence that we'd really want to see. Although we often think about RCTs as studies of treatments, they're also really important for tests. In order for us to really know if a test is helping or hurting our patients, we need an RCT. And when it comes to stress testing ED patients, there's really only one usable RCT, so we're sort of left guessing. And in order to make the best scientific guess, we have to consider a number of different types of literature. So we have to think about the pretest probability, because pretest probability is a huge part of whether tests will work. We have to consider the test's accuracy, the sensitivity and the specificity, but that's a little bit complex in stress testing because you have to think about the outcome, what we're actually trying to find with a stress test. And then finally, we have to think about what we're going to do with the results of the test, because the test is only valuable if we can do something with the results. So hopefully putting all that together, the pretest probability, the accuracy of the test, and the resultant management will get a better sense about whether stress testing is actually helping our patients. It's a lot to go through, but I think it's worth it because I think this literature will change practice uh, for a lot of you. I think the results will surprise some of you. All right, so we got a lot of ground to cover, but before we get to the stress test itself, it probably makes sense to talk about the patients first. So Justin, you mentioned that we need to know the pretest probability, the accuracy of the test, and the resultant management. Let's start with the pretest probability. So in general, we order stress tests in the ED because we're worried about missing an MI, and the miss rate that's been traditionally cited all over the literature is somewhere between 1% and 2%, which for a life-threatening diagnosis is probably a little bit too high for most of us to swallow. But Justin, I understand that this 1% to 2% miss rate might actually be wrong. Yeah, so that 2% number is exactly what I taught. And, you know, it's cited in every paper that I read. But it's a great example of why you often have to go back and read the literature for yourself. So the paper that's always cited for that 2% number is Pope 2000. And if you just read the abstract, it says right there, we miss 2.1% of MIs. But when you go and read the paper, this study actually looked at 10,689 patients who presented to the emergency department with symptoms suggested of MI. And out of that 10,000 patients, there were 19 who were sent home and ultimately had an MI. So 19 out of over 10,000, that's less than 0.2%. And even if you include a few unstable angina diagnoses, the miss rate is still less than 0.4%. Wait, hold on, Justin. So explain that to us a little bit more. Why did the paper cite a 2% miss rate in the abstract when the actual number is only like one-tenth of that? Yeah, so the problem is what you decide to use is the denominator. Not everybody showing up to the emergency department with chest pain has an MI. So if you only look at the group of patients who have an MI, we do miss about 2% of them. But that's not a fair number because we don't know who those patients are. So for the patient in front of you, the patient with undifferentiated chest pain, after a negative ED workup, that patient's risk is somewhere between one and three in a thousand. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Justin. And this one in three in a thousand has been pretty consistent across all trials. A study by Foy et al. in 2015 looked at this huge insured database of about 420,000 ED patients with chest pain, and only 464 of them ended up having an MI a week after discharge. That's 0.1% or one in a thousand. And if you follow them out to 190 days, the rate goes up to 0.3% or three in a thousand. And some numbers are even lower in some settings. There was a study by Nepali et al. in 2014 that looked at 3,543 patients admitted to a chest pain observation unit. And in this population, there were zero deaths and zero MIs. They had a 0% miss rate in the ED, and yet all these patients got admitted to the hospital anyway. And of course, the big assumption here is that if these MIs are missed and these patients are sent home, they will do worse than if we admit them to the hospital. And that actually has never been substantiated. In fact, if you go back to the Pope trial where all this trouble began, the missed MIs did just as well as the patients in whom the MIs were identified in the ED on their initial visit. Yeah, so we've gone a little bit crazy, and there's a bunch more data on this, and I have it summarized in my my blog post, but the point is, once you're done your workup of a chest pain patient in the emergency department with a couple ECGs and, and a couple of troponins, their risk is incredibly low. We just don't miss that many patients, but these are exactly the patients that we decide to do a stress test on, and even really good tests don't work well in such low-risk populations. Let's pretend for a second that a stress test is excellent, that it has something like a 95% sensitivity and a 95% specificity. Oh, wait, hold on there, Justin. Just to be clear that you know the real accuracy is way, way lower than that. Yeah, well... We'll get back to that, but just for now, let's pretend. Yeah. So if we if we pretend stress testing is excellent and we try to apply that test to these patients who have a one or a three in a thousand risk of MI and we order the stress test, what are the results? Well, if you get really nerdy and you plug this into one of those Fagan nomograms, you'll see that after a negative test, the risk doesn't really change. You still have about a one in a thousand chance of having an MI. But the big problem is the positive test. We like to think that positive tests mean something. But actually, because the pretest probability is so low, the post-test probability only comes up to 2%. So even if the stress tests were accurate, a positive result would only have a 2% chance of being correct. For every one true positive, there would be 50 false positives. And again, that's assuming that stress tests are accurate, which we're going to talk about. They aren't. So the results are even worse in the real world. Okay, so we need to sort out the accuracy of stress tests then. Uh, but before we get into the accuracy of the stress test, I think it's important to look at what outcomes have been studied. So there's MI, very important, of course. There's death, also very important. And there's revascularization. Now, revascularization, going to the cath lab for an angiogram based on a positive stress test result, and then getting a stent or a cabbage, figuring out whether or not that outcome is an important one is really complicated. Yeah, and, and so this is exactly what we're trying to accomplish when exposing patients to the stress test. We want to identify a population who would benefit from a cath, meaning they have a stentable lesion that if we do nothing, they'll go on to have an MI or even death. So given this, I think it's important we pause for a moment and discuss the benefits of stents, because after all, that's what we're trying to identify when we perform stress tests on a chest pain patient. And unlike the data on stress testing in general, the data on which patients benefit from cardiac stents is very strong. 
Now, it's important to distinguish STEMI patients from low-risk chest pain patients, unstable angina, or even N-STEMI patients. In STEMI patients, the evidence is pretty clear. Stents save lives. Yeah, absolutely, Rory. But we don't send many STEMI patients for stress tests, at least not on purpose. So the question we have to ask is, if you aren't having a STEMI, is there a value to getting a stent? Does revascularization of NSTEMI patients or unstable angina truly help? So for NSTEMI and unstable angina patients, we can look at the Cochrane Review, and this is Fanning et al. in 2016. And they found eight randomized control trials that included about 9,000 patients. And it's important to note that these patients were true NSTEMIs and unstable angina. This is not the patient coming in with some chest pain, but everything else looks normal. These unstable angina patients had EKG changes, known coronary artery disease, and a lot of them actually had elevations in their cardiac biomarkers. And what they found was routine invasive therapy didn't save lives. There was actually no change in mortality. It also did not statistically change the rate of follow-up MIs, although this is right on the edge and the p-value just kind of tipped close to around 0.05. There was an improvement in refractory angina, but that's a subjective outcome. And as we'll see later, none of these trials are blinded, and that might be really important. Plus, the routine invasive approach was associated with far more iatrogenic harms. Wow. So, so it sounds like routine invasive management for these high-risk patients, these, these non-STEMIs and unstable angina patients might not be of any benefit at all. Like they actually might cause harm. That's, that's pretty surprising actually. Yeah. It's certainly not clear that routine invasive management helps in this patient population. And remember too, that this isn't a comparison against no in- invasive management at all. The number of patients in the control group did go on to get stents after failing medical management, although we don't know if those stents actually helped. So wait, just hold on there. So remind me again, why are we talking about non-STEMI and high-risk unstable angina patients in a stress test review? You know, I think what our listeners want to really know is, are stress tests useful for low-risk chest pain patients who present to the ED, like much lower-risk patients? what I want to highlight here is this is the best case scenario. These are the patients we're actually trying to identify when we do stress tests on patients in the emergency department. The biggest benefit possible in stress testing is if you happen to miss an NSTEMI or an unstable angina and getting them to the cath lab with a po- after a positive stress test just might have saved their lives. But what is clear, it's probably unlikely to help even this subset of, of chest pain patients. Yeah, but really, again, these aren't the patients that we're sending for stress tests, right? These are the, the patients we send for stress tests are symptom free. They have normal ECGs and negative biomarkers. They're low risk chest pain patients. So, in other words, we're stress testing patients with possible stable coronary disease. And if we look at invasive management in these patients with possible coronary disease, the results are even worse, right? Yes, absolutely. We can look at, there's a meta-analysis by Sergiopoulos in the Archives of Internal Medicine 2012, and they found eight RCTs, about 7,000 patients, comparing invasive management to medical therapy for patients with stable coronary artery disease. And there was no difference in mortality, no difference in non-fatal MI, no difference in unplanned revascularization, and no difference in persistent angina. So no differences at all, zero. 
Yeah, and this is what happens to patients with positive stress tests. We send them for invasive investigations and then invasive interventions. But the invasive management doesn't help them, according to this literature. They get no benefit, but they get all the risks associated with those invasive procedures. So just to be fair, Justin, there is some data out there that stenting patients with stable coronary disease may reduce early symptoms. So angina in the first two years after the stent may be reduced uh, if you actually get these patients stented. Yeah. Anton, what you're referring to is the results of the CURDS trial. And first, before we get there, I would, I would probably think the, the goal in the emergency department probably shouldn't be to reduce anginal symptoms two years after their presentation to the ED. Um, but that's a little bit besides the point. What the CURDS trial was, was one of the first big large trials to examine stenting versus optimal medical management in patients with stable coronary artery disease. And they found a small improvement in symptoms in the patients that were randomized to undergo stenting versus optimal medical management. But What's important to remember is this was an open-label study, and so patients knew whether they received a stent or optimal management, and even this has actually been debunked since. Okay, Roy, so let's hear the evidence that stenting does not even improve symptoms in patients with stable coronary disease. So in 2017, the Orbita trial was published, and this was the first sham-controlled randomized study examining stenting versus coronary artery disease. See, every trial before this comparing stenting to optimal medical management was an open-label, non-blinded study. Until Orbita came along, there was literally no study that performed a sham catheterization. And when they did perform a sham catheterization in the Orbita trial, the authors found no difference in symptom burden between those who underwent true stenting and those who had a sham procedure. Okay, let's regroup here. So to summarize, the patients we send home from the ED are very, very low risk. With normal ECGs and negative biomarkers, the patient's risk isn't 1% or 2% like we've been taught, but actually well under 1%, probably something like 2 to 4 in 1,000. And the patients we miss don't seem to do worse. We also know that these patients, patients who aren't having an MI, don't get any benefit from revascularization in terms of mortality, MI, or persistent angina, really. So that'll help us interpret the stress test studies we're going to dive into now. Uh, but it also raises an important question. What do you do with the positive stress test? So keeping all that in mind, I think it's time to get into the meat of the issue, the accuracy of the stress test. So what can you guys tell me about the accuracy of stress tests? So Antan, this is where things start to get a little bit messy. There's a lot of bias in this research, and the studies all look at slightly different outcomes, but we'll tackle some of that as we go through. I think the first paper we should look at is uh, Meyer in Annals of Emergency Medicine 2006. So this is a prospective observational trial. They looked at emergency department patients who had to be over 40 years of age, and these are the patients after your serial troponins, your normal ECGs, and then they had the clinicians stratify them into low, intermediate, and high-risk uh, patients based on their cardiac risk factors. And here, we're only looking at the low-risk patients who then they thought they could manage as outpatients. And all these uh, outpatients were supposed to get a stress test. So out of about 7,000 patients, about 1,000 were considered low-risk and appropriate for outpatient stress testing, and about 900 of those actually got the stress test. Now, there were no deaths at all in the six-month follow-up period, and, and that will be pretty consistent throughout all these trials. Patients don't seem to die in short-term follow-up here. There were three patients 
who had an MI after hospital discharge. Uh, only one of them was it within one month. So the kind of patient we really are concerned about in the emergency department. All three of these patients had negative stress tests. So in other words, the stress test did not find any of the patients at risk for short-term MI. It had a sensitivity of 0%. Now, out of the 900 patients with stress tests, there were 150 abnormal stress tests. Out of those, 122 had confirmatory testing that showed no coronary artery disease. So in other words, at least 80% of the positive stress tests were confirmed to be false positives. So if you're looking for death or MI, the stress test has a 0% sensitivity and the specificity is also awful. There are a ton of false positives here. Now, if you want to dig into the revascularization uh, numbers, there were 17 revascularization procedures in the next six months for patients who had positive stress tests and five for people who had negative stress tests. But I don't really know what to do with those numbers because we've already said, given that none of these patients had an MI, it's likely that none of these patients needed to have revascularization. So I actually think this probably represents iatrogenic harm rather than benefit. So there's sort of a little nuance here that I think is important. You know, it sounds like there's a reasonable chance that the stress tests actually cause the revascularization instead of predicting it. Yeah, you know, this is, we're going to kind of encounter this throughout the data as we as we go on, but without a true RCT, it's impossible to know for sure. But I'm pretty sure that I think the only thing this study actually demonstrated is the more stress tests you do, the more catheterizations will be performed and the more revascularizations that will occur over testing, over diagnosis and over treatment. Yeah, it's, it's a key point. And it's, it's probably one that deserves a little bit of a, a, an aside because there's a huge bias in all of these trials, something called partial verification bias. Partial verification bias. All right, Rory, give us the lowdown on what partial verification bias is. So imagine you come to the emergency department with chest pain and you get ruled out for an MI and, and you undergo a stress test and that stress test happens to be positive. You're likely to get an angiogram. And if you have a negative stress test, we're just going to send you home with no more testing. But we know that stable asymptomatic coronary artery disease will exist in a reasonable number of patients. So it isn't surprising that some lesions are found when you do an angiogram. And because there was a positive stress test, people will feel compelled to place a stent, even if we know those patients don't benefit from stenting. The thing is, people we send home never get an angiogram. So some of them may have coronary artery disease that goes unnoticed, and they will never get a stent. And since stents aren't beneficial in this patient population and may even cause harm, all these patients, for the most part, will end up doing fine. And so we think a stress test works great because the patients who underwent stress testing had some revascularization, and we assume that that benefited that patient. All right. So just to kind of rephrase that, so the stress test isn't predicting the need for a stent. It's actually causing the stent to be placed, which is the result of this partial verification bias, right? Exactly. All right. So there's a good possibility then that stress tests cause stents instead of predicting them. And there's more flawed reasoning buried in this. And that has to do with how we label patients with unstable angina based on a positive stress test. Remember that the false positive rate of stress testing is high. And that has to do at least partially with incorporation bias. So Let's keep this high false positive rate and incorporation bias in mind for the next study we discuss. 
So Rory, hit us with the lowdown on the Schoemeyer study out of Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2012. So the Schumacher paper is our next big observational trial, and it's a prospective op- observational study in emergency department chest pain patients. And these are patients who had normal EKGs and negative troponins at two to six hours. And the clinician could decide if they were very low risk, in which case no further testing was done, or at risk, in which case an exercise stress test was booked and performed within 48 hours. And they included 1,140 patients over an eight-month period, 254 of these patients receiving a stress test. So overall, there were no deaths or MIs among the stress test group. So we can't say anything about how accurate it was to predict these important outcomes. Otherwise, the results are pretty similar to what we've seen already. Most stress tests were negative. Among the 50 positive stress tests, 29 were determined to be false positive. So once again, there's a very high false positive rate. The interesting thing about this study is who was counted as true positives. Of the 21 patients who had positive stress tests, all of them were diagnosed with unstable angina. And the problem with unstable angina as a diagnosis is that it's entirely subjective. So none of these patients had any EKG changes or positive troponins at any time. And such a subjective outcomes are always a problem in unblinded trials. But it gets even worse than that. If you look at their methods, the definition of unstable angina includes a positive stress test. Yeah, I mean, that sure sounds like incorporation bias to me. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of stuck in some crazy circular reasoning. These patients have unstable angina because their stress test was positive, and the stress test is considered a true positive because they have unstable angina. Yeah, so just to back up, we we should say what incorporation bias is. And incorporation bias is really important when you're trying to understand these trials. So incorporation bias occurs when the gold standard or the outcome that you're using includes the results of the test that you're trying to study. So as you said, it's a kind of circular reasoning. And this is the perfect example. When the definition of unstable angina includes a positive stress test, the stress test didn't predict the unstable angina. It simply defined the result. So you cannot possibly calculate a sensitivity or a specificity when you use that definition. So moving on, the next paper I have here in front of me is Amsterdam 2002. This is another one of these observational trials. There's a thousand emergency department patients with non-ischemic ECGs. This one is a little bit funny though, because they did the stress test immediately before they even had a single troponin back. Now in the study, the stress test was negative in 64% of patients. It was positive 13% of the time and indeterminate in about a quarter of patients. And like the prior studies, nobody died. So these are low risk patients. Now, there were five MIs identified during the 30-day follow-up period. Four of these did occur in patients who had positive stress tests, but all four were identified on a troponin that was actually drawn before the stress test was done. So the stress test was pretty useless in those four patients. So the only MI that was not diagnosed on day number one occurred in a patient with a negative stress test. So once again, for the important outcomes of death and MI after ED workup, stress testing had a sensitivity of 0%. Now, of the patients who had a positive stress test, there were 102 who went on to have further testing, and only 33 of those were positive. So once again, most of the positive stress tests were false positives. There were 12 revascularization procedures here. Now, four of those were in the patients who had MI diagnosed by troponin, so that's fair enough. The other eight had negative ECGs and negative troponins, so they were probably unnecessary, but it's hard to say. 
So I think it probably makes sense to stop here, guys. There are a bunch more papers like this, a ton of observational trials, all with the same flaws. They, they have partial verification bias, incorporation bias, a lack of blinding. But I'll tell you, they're, they're all really consistent. Stress testing picks up almost none of the patients at short-term risk for MI. And of the positive stress tests, the vast majority are false positive. So overall, looking at this data, the sensitivity and specificity of stress testing, at least for those important outcomes, short-term death in MI is incredibly poor. All right. There's definitely a theme developing here. Uh, so time for a quick review. The patients we send home after normal ECGs and tropes are incredibly low risk. There appears to be no benefit from PCI outside of STEMI, so it isn't clear what we should do with a positive stress test result. Stress testing, as it's currently used in the ED, doesn't really catch what we really care about, MIs or death, but it does lead to a lot of false positives and increases the rate of invasive procedures. But stress tests are recommended for a reason, we hope. So let's change our focus a little bit here and ask, how good is stress testing at finding coronary disease? And let's define coronary disease here for the purposes of this discussion as a stenosis of 50 to 70% found on an angiogram. So Justin, how good is stress testing at finding actual coronary disease? Not very good. No, so let's look at some literature. So Anton, just like all the other studies we talked about here, we got to be really careful about partial verification bias when we're asking this question. Because coronary artery disease is really common in the general population. And so for exercise stress testing, I found really only one study that could answer this question without bias. And that's because every patient in the study got the exact same workup. And so this is Froelicher in the Annals of Internal Medicine, 1998. And they have 814 consecutive patients who have a di clinical diagnosis of angina. And every single patient got both an exercise stress test and an angiogram. And that's the key to this study. And if you use angiography as the gold standard, exercise stress testing had a sensitivity of 45% and a specificity of 85%. So that translates to a positive likelihood ratio of about three and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.65. But the bottom line here is pretty clear. Stress testing is poor at identifying anatomical disease. You just can't rule in or rule out disease using those numbers. And there's a high chance of both false positives and false negatives. Yeah. You know, Justin, I think this is even worse than these numbers would suggest because the numbers from this study reflect the stress test accuracy to identify anatomical lesions. And as we've discussed already from the stent data, anatomical lesions do not predict who will actually benefit from the placement of a stent. What we want to know is which patients do we send home from the ED will have an MI or go on to die if they don't get a stress test and then have a lesion found that they can stent. And now for our EBM bomb. Hi, it's Anton Nicklein again with another EBM bomb. Today, we're going to be covering pretest probability. Pretest probability can be described as the chance a patient has a certain disease before conducting a particular diagnostic test. Let's say, what's the chance the patient in front of me is having an MI even before I order the troponins? It's important to ask these questions because it helps determine what tests we should order, how to interpret these tests, and whether we should be treating these patients before any of the tests come back. A great example of this is when considering a patient for PE. We're lucky to have the Wells score, which correlates with the pretest probability. 
A score of less than 2 roughly equates to a 15% pretest probability and is considered low risk. We evaluate these patients with a D-dimer since it helps us rule out a PE. On the other hand, if the Wells score and pretest probability come back higher, well, then we order a CT for a definitive diagnosis. Pretest probabilities aren't always easily obtained, though, and sometimes we rely on disease prevalence and clinical gestalt to generate a number. If the probability is high enough, then even a negative test doesn't change our post-test probability. If the patient in front of me looks like a raging MI, then a negative trope doesn't rule it out. Overall, this concept is important to understand in our daily practice to help us decide the utility of our many great, but often limited, diagnostic tests. And that's been your one-minute EBM bomb. Treadmill stress testing is not very good at identifying coronary disease because of the high false positive and false negative rate. Uh, what about stress echo and nuclear stress testing? You know, that seems to me like it might actually be a little bit more accurate. It would make sense that these would have more promising false positive and false negative rates. Yeah, you know, when when you look at the data on this, the estimates are all over the map. But in general, stress echo and nuclear stress testing are thought to be more accurate than exercise stress testing. There's one systematic review that looks at both, and this is the Jong in European Radiology published in 2012. And why we chose this systematic review is that they acknowledge partial verification bias and so only include the studies where all the patients got an angiogram as their gold standard. And for stress echo, there were 795 patients in 10 studies, and the sensitivity was 87% and the specificity of 72%, so slightly better than an exercise stress test. This translates to a positive likelihood ratio of 3 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.18. For nuclear stress testing, there was 1,323 patients in a total of 13 studies. And again, the sensitivity was 83% and the specificity of 77% with a positive likelihood ratio of 3.5 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.22. So it looks like these numbers are definitely better than the standard exercise ECG stress test. Uh, Is there like any ray of hope for stress echo and nuclear stress tests? Not really. Yeah, I mean, these numbers are slightly better and give you moderate accuracy of these tests to identify anatomical disease. But, you know, they're no way good enough to rule in and rule out disease in the patient population that we're dealing with. Remember at the start of the episode when Justin talked about even if we had a perfect test, because the pretest probability is so low, we're really going to get a lot of false positives no matter how good this test is. So even though the numbers sound a little bit better, you know, rather than the 45% sensitivity for standard stress tests, at least we're getting kind of close to 80% sensitivity and specificity with, with stress echo and nuclear stress testing. But even if I can't use the test to rule patients in or out, the results may help me shift my post-test probability a bit. Maybe I can use stress echo and nuclear stress testing to help my clinical decision-making a little bit. Perhaps, but remember, again, these tests are testing for anatomical disease, which is not really what we want to know. What we want to know is which patients will benefit from a cardiac cath and a possible stent. All right, fair enough. Yeah, I agree. You know, what we really want to know is improved patient outcomes, So patient outcomes are much more important than the sensitivity and specificity of anatomical lesions. 
Are there any trials that tell us about the actual clinical outcomes after stress echo or nuclear stress testing, Rory? Yeah, the, the most interesting of these papers by Sandu et al. In two, published in 2017, and this was a retrospective cohort using an instrumental variable approach. An instrumental variable approach. Okay, I think I've heard of that one before. That That's the one where they try to reduce confounders between groups in observational trials, right? Yeah, exactly. They look at a variable that explains why some people were exposed and others were not, but that should not be related to the outcome and interest. In this case, they did something really interesting, which was to prey on our consistent laziness and our utter hatred of working on the weekend. Now, we would expect that patients with chest pain will have similar rates of acute coronary syndrome and bad outcomes whenever they present to the hospital, whether that's on a weekday or a weekend. However, on the weekend, there is less accessibility to stress testing. Therefore, by comparing patients who present on the weekday to those who present on the weekend, we hope to get a less confounded sense of the value of stress testing. Meaning the reason patients who presented on the weekend and didn't get a stress test had nothing to do with the patient characteristics themselves, but rather had to do with the resources of the hospital they presented to. So they included ED chest pain patients aged 18 to 64, but excluded patients whose final diagnosis suggested ischemia. In total, they included 926,633 patients. They were correct in their assumption that weekday patients were more likely to get provocative testing. 18% versus 12%. Otherwise, weekday and weekend patients look very similar in terms of their cardiac risk factors. Weekday patients were subjected to more angiographies, 5.5 per 1,000 patients. However, despite this increase in invest invasive testing on the weekdays, the rates of MI and revasculation on follow-up were the same in both groups at one year. All right, Rory, what's the bottom line for this study of weekend versus weekday? So even though this is observational data only, it has to be some of the best controlled data we have. And what it tells us is that if you show up during the week, you're more likely to get a stress test. And probably as a result of that, you're more likely to get an angiogram and invasive management. However, the invasive management was not associated with any benefit because the one-year outcomes were essentially the same between both groups. Yeah. Stress testing leads to more invasive management, but not better outcomes. That seems to be sorted by a, a lot of observational data. Now, the Sandu paper is probably the best because it's at least somewhat controlled, but there are a lot of other similar trials. There's FOI 2015 in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine that looked at that an insurance database of 420,000 chest pain patients, and there was no difference in the rate of missed MI between the patients who had non-invasive testing and those who did not. So there are similar results in Reinhardt 2017. This is a secondary analysis of the RAMACAT RCT that compared patients who had non-invasive cardiac testing to those who did not. And once again, non-invasive testing was associated with longer length of stay, more downstream testing, more radiation, a greater cost, and all of that without any improvement in clinical outcomes. All right, you're depressing me here, Justin. This doesn't sound promising so far. <laughs> I'd like to know what the yield of stress testing is in the real world setting, though. So, Justin, can you tell us a little bit about the 2004 Napoli study uh, out of the annals of EM? Yeah, so Rory already mentioned this uh, the study when we were talking about misrate earlier. This is a prospective observational trial. They looked at just over 3,500 chest pain patients who were admitted to the hospital in one in a cardiac observation unit. And in this entire cohort, 
3,500 patients admitted to hospital, there was not a single death or MI in follow-up. Now, about half of these patients had a stress test after their negative biomarkers, and only 20 out of the 1,700, that's about 1%, were considered true positives. And true positive just meant that there was coronary artery disease on their angiogram. And in addition to those 20 true positives, there were nine that they considered to be false positive. So in other words, in a real world setting, the yield of stress testing is incredibly low. They found 1% what they considered to be true positives, but but the value of those true positives isn't clear to me because it's not clear that it would have changed management in any way. In a similar study by Kair et al. in Critical Care Pathways of Cardiology 2018, they reported on a retrospective study that looked at all the patients who had stress testing of any kind performed in their chest pain observational unit. And there was a total of 1,194 patients. 91% of them had a negative stress test. 48 patients, or 4%, had an indeterminate test, of whom only one had coronary artery disease on angiogram. So obviously, the cardiologists felt that these patients also had a negative test. Of the 62 patients, or 5%, with a positive stress test, not all of them even had an angiogram, but those that did, 69% ended up being negative. In other words, stress testing was again found to be very low yield and had far more false positives than true positives. And again, it isn't even clear that these true positive results had any meaningful change in management. Finally, despite no clear benefit, the cost to the patients who had the positive stress test was five times higher than those who had a negative stress test. Yeah, it sounds like what we really need here is an RCT to see if these tests really help. So, uh, Rory, were there any RCTs using stress echo or nuclear stress testing? Yeah, there's actually two RCTs looking at stress testing in the emergency department. The first is by Lim in 2013 and the Journal of Nuclear Cardiology. And this looked at a little over 1,500 patients with chest pain, normal EKG, and negative biomarkers at 0, 3, and 6 hours. And they were randomized to either a nuclear myocardial perfusion scan or clinical assessment based on risk factors and emergency department EKG. The primary outcome found that there was no difference in the rate of cardiac events at 30 days, 0.4% versus 0.8%, nor at one year, 0.7% versus 1%. There was actually no cardiac deaths at 30 days, and at one year, there were three cardiac deaths in the stress testing group compared to zero in the clinical assessment admission rate was lower in the stress testing group, 10 versus 18%, but this requires you to have the ability to get stress testing in the emergency department. In most settings, this protocol would certainly result in a much higher admission rate in the stress testing group just to get the test done. Unlike every other study in this group, the stress testing group actually had fewer angiograms performed, 22 versus 39%. This is probably explained by the incredibly high rate of angiography in the control group. Mind you, all these patients had a negative ED workup, so I'm not really sure why they had so many angiographies other than it might have been the the preference of the cardiologist in this hospital to be fairly aggressive with their catheterization. So in our first RCT that looks at ED patients, adding stress testing doesn't seem to decrease any important outcomes at 30 days or at one year. 
And I'm not going to change those results at all with our second RCT. There is another RCT. It's by Frizzoli 2017 in a journal called Circulation, Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes. So this trial only looked at 105 patients. Again, these are patients with two negative troponins at least three hours apart. Uh, and you had to have a modified heart score less than or equal to three. And what I mean by modified is you couldn't have a positive troponin. And so once again, these patients were either randomized to have an immediate uh, discharge, just go straight home from the uh, emergency department or to be admitted to have stress testing. At 30 days, there were no deaths, no MIs, and no revascularizations in either group. So obviously, stress testing cannot help our patients if they're at 0% risk to start with. Not surprisingly, those randomized to immediate discharge had significantly shorter length of stay, uh, six versus 26 hours, and the hospital charges were also significantly lower, three versus 10 thousands. So overall, these patients were so low risk that there's no way the distress test could have possibly helped them. But the standard at this hospital uh, is to keep them in hospital for more than a day and to charge them an extra $7,000. Yeah, I mean, you got to wonder to what extent the motivation for U.S. hospitals having chest pain observation units is, you know, whether it's to make more money or really to take better care of patients. Um, you know, maybe that's why so few hospitals in Canada have chest pain observation units. In Canada, it would cost the hospital more money, not make money for, not make money for it. But I digress. So getting back to the RCTs for stress testing, those are the only emergency department RCTs. Justin, are there any other RCTs we should be considering? Yeah, I think there's a couple other studies that we can learn, uh, learn from. Uh, maybe the most important is the dyad study. This is Young in JAMA 2009. And it's an RCT that looked at 1,100 patients, um, and all of them had diabetes as a marker of having high cardiac risk. And these patients were randomized to either get a nuclear stress test or no screening. Now, the big problem with this study is that it has no blinding at all, but nonetheless, over a five-year follow-up period, the stress test made no difference at all. The rate of cardiac death in non-fatal MI was 2.7% in the stress test group and 3% in the no testing group. So st stress testing used as a screening test did not help this population. Now, I'll say this is a primary care po population, but to, to be fair, these are very similar to the kind of patients that we end up sending for stress tests. They're, they're patients who have diabetes or, or risk factors, and we're using it more as a screening test for coronary artery disease rather than a test to find those patients at risk of, of MI or immediate short-term death. Right. So, so the next study, again, is not an ED population per se, but again, gives us a, a, a look into the, the benefits of, of stress testing. And this was the decreased two study. Um, and it was by Poldermans in 2016 in the Journal of American College of Cardiology. And they randomized 770 patients who were undergoing major vascular surgery to either have a stress test or not prior to surgery in some form of cardiac clearance. And short answer is stress testing didn't help at all. There was no difference in 30-day rates of cardiac death or MI. However, the stress testing did lead to more invasive procedures, which given the lack of overall benefit, should probably be counted as harms. Now, finally, I think it's worth mentioning Mahler 2015, uh, which is in circulation. This is actually an RCT of the heart pathway. So they weren't directly looking at stress testing, but I think the results give us some important insight. So in the heart pathway group, there was a 12% decrease in objective testing, primarily stress testing or coronary CTA, but there was no difference in the 30-day rate of major adverse cardiac events. Uh, 
So in an emergency department setting, we know that at very least selective stress testing is better than routine or indiscriminate stress testing. Decreasing the rate of stress testing here did not make any difference. But given everything else that we've talked about, it seems very likely that you could continue to decrease that rate of objective stress testing all the way down to 0%, and there will probably still be no difference in the rate of 30-day major adverse cardiac events. All right, so let's move towards wrapping it up. So my take home from this is, especially for young patients, you know, we know that stress testing has even a higher false positive rate than these studies would suggest. So for those young patients, I'm definitely not sending them for stress testing at all. And for older patients, if anything, I may consider a nuclear stress test or a stress echo, which is a little bit more accurate. But even then, I'd be extremely selective. You know, maybe the patient with a negative heart pathway, but still has some risk factors and a moderately good story for unstable angina, and the cardiologist won't admit them. I might still consider a stress echo or nuclear stress test in that kind of patient, but this will be really a very rare situation. The problem after looking through all this stress test data, I find is the alternative is doing nothing, I guess. You know, no follow-up, no further stress testing, no further testing. And that's kind of scary for me. And having them follow up in our rapid cardiology clinic in a few days, in a way, is just kind of passing the buck because they have that referral bias when you refer them to a cardiology clinic. And that cardiologist will probably order provocative testing anyhow on almost all the patients that you send them. On the, on the other hand, the cardiologist can maximize their medical therapy uh, and that actually might provide some value to the patient. So all that being said, I think it's important to know where ASEP stands uh, on this issue. And it turns out that ASEP has caught up with this literature and their latest clinical policy paper on suspected NSTEMI ACS actually reflects this. So they ask, quote, in adult patients with suspected NSTEMI ACS in whom acute MI has been excluded, does further diagnostic testing e.g. provocative stress tests, CT angiography for ACS prior to discharge, reduce 30-day MACE. And they answer as a level B recommendation, quote, do not routinely use further diagnostic testing prior to discharge in low-risk patients in whom acute MI has been ruled out to reduce 30-day MACE. And as level C evidence, they say, quote, Arrange follow-up in one to two weeks for low-risk patients in whom MI has been ruled out. If no follow-up is available, consider further testing or observation prior to discharge. So it's a little bit vague there. But they do argue that limiting complex, expensive, and time-consuming testing can reduce patient cost. It can reduce ED and hospital length of stay. And, which I think sometimes is overlooked, it can reduce patient anxiety caused by unnecessary stress testing and potentially false positive results. So all of this sounds relatively reasonable to me. They do point out, and this is the kicker, that the current AHA guidelines suggest that you should work within your hospital system to establish an agreed upon approach to minimize medical legal risk. And I think this is kind of the key. I think we should really all be getting involved in our ED policies, you know, sit down with your cardiologists and hash this out. 
so that there's some sort of agreed upon algorithm that makes sense based on the literature. If you can arrive at an agreed upon algorithm for low risk chest pain patients that does not include routine stress testing, I think that would be ideal. Efforts, I think, really should be placed instead on patient education so that they understand the risks of stress testing and the rational medical optimization of these patients. Rory, what's, uh, what's your take on? You know, it, it's really funny. Like, I, I have reviewed this literature like maybe once every five years or so. And it just, every time I read it, it just reminds me how bad stress testing is. And it's, it's just, you know, it's an inaccurate test that is terrible at finding a disease process that if we happen to get lucky and identify, we don't have a useful treatment to actually treat. And so if you put that all together, why are we doing these tests in the first place? We're exposing patients to a huge amount of risk, and then we're exposing them to an intervention that is unlikely to help them and could possibly harm them, not to mention the resources that we're costing our healthcare system every year by, by just continuing to do this kind of testing. And so the only thing that it comes down to is that because it's still an accepted form of therapy, we're really shifting our own risk. And then we have to ask who are we really treating, the patients or ourselves? The data here, it's hard. There's never a simple, straightforward answer in evidence-based medicine. The data here was pretty complex. But in this case, I actually think the conclusion is really easy. I have not been ordering stress tests at all for, for years. If what you're interested in is catching patients at short-term risk of MI or death, I think it's very clear that stress tests can't do that. Even out to one year, stress testing doesn't seem to predict important outcomes. If what you're interested in is trying to find patients who need invasive management, well, stress testing can't do that either because these patients don't need invasive management. If you're interested in finding stable coronary artery disease, well, stress testing isn't very good at that either, and you'd have to ask yourself, what am I going to do with the results? People worry about stopping the workup with no further testing, but we have to remember, tests can hurt people. In emergency medicine, we get so focused on not missing anything that it's easy to overlook the harms of our tests, and this data clearly shows harm. Stress testing leads to more people getting invasive procedures that they don't need, and those invasive procedures cause harm. So for me, it's pretty clear. Stress testing shouldn't be an emergency department test. Could it have some role? Well, like you said, Anton, maybe. Because the patients that we send home do still need medical management. Now, everybody should have their blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes checked, their diet, their smoking status, all of that needs to be addressed. You don't need a stress test for that. That's just good primary care and it should happen anyway. But making a decision about lifelong antiplatelet therapy will probably depend on whether you think this was actually cardiac chest pain. Now, you still need to consider the pretest probability. You know, some people are so low risk that there's no way that you're going to start them on an aspirin, no matter what a stress test said. If I had chest pain tomorrow, I would not listen to a stress test. I, I'm not taking aspirin for the rest of my life yet. But, and there, on the other hand, there are some people who are so high risk that they should be on aspirin no matter what. You don't need the stress test to tell you that. But there may be some people in the, in the middle, in that gray area, where maybe stress testing could guide your medical management. But... I'm still really skeptical of that approach because the accuracy of these tests is awful. And in the only RCTs that we have, stress testing did not help. So I think instead of relying on the stress test, you probably want to rely on clinical judgment. You know, if this pain really sounded cardiac, prescribe aspirin. If it didn't, if it was clearly atyp atypical, which is really, honestly, the majority of patients that we're sending for stress test right now, then don't just stop the workup. 
We need to remember that we're doctors and sometimes we need to make tough decisions rather than relying on crappy tests. But either way, I'd say all this is a complex decision that's much better uh, left for the primary care doc. It's probably not something that we should be doing routinely, at least in the emergency department. I got to agree with that for sure. So I think we'll all agree that routine stress testing in the ED is out. You know, whether stress testing should be gotten rid of altogether is a little bit of a different question. I guess we'll have to leave that up to the uh, cardiologists and primary care docs. Sounds good to me. Agreed. Mm-hmm. 